Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get, get is podcast. Well, as Christians, it's reasonable to assume that we are pro-life. So, dear listener, if you have made that assumption, you have made a correct assumption in this case, right? At least for me. Yes. I don't know about you over there. Angel of death over there. Angel of death. <laughs> yes. And that term pro-life is a, it's a loaded term. It is used in theological circles. It's used in political circles. And it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But usually when you hear the term pro-life, what that's referring to in particular is that you are anti-abortion, right? And that's certainly true for us. Right. But the thing is about being pro-life is that it can express itself in a lot of different forms. And there are actually a lot of different issues that can fold into that kind of pro-life mentality, particularly if you're thinking of being pro-life from womb to tomb. That's a phrase that's kind of come into vogue more recently when we talk about being pro-life. Yeah, and not every Christian would agree on exactly how to tackle all of the issues that are consumed from womb to tomb because you're talking about life and the many variables that it has and the many ways that uh, life can be taken. And so it's not just in regards to the unborn. There's a lot of other areas that would fold into this topic as we talk about what does it actually mean to be pro-life in all of its stages. Right. Yeah. So today on the podcast, we thought we'd talk about, you know, what, what all those issues are that are at play when we talk about being pro-life. And we won't be able to tackle all of the issues because who can tackle all the issues of life and death in a single podcast episode? <laughs> right. If anybody were going to attempt it, it would probably be me. But we're not going to attempt it. And specifically when we talk about being pro-life from womb to tomb, that that phrase is often used in reference to including things like racial equality and issues surrounding poverty into the conversation of being mm-hmm. pro-life because a lot of times that's being framed in a very partisan kind of way that you vote this way because it's pro-life, but is it completely pro-life from womb to tomb? And... That's because if you're going to be truly pro-life, they need to be true quality of life. And Mm. furthermore, when it comes to issues, particularly of racial uh, inequality and issues of poverty, there is actually a lot more loss of life because of uh, the injustices that are present in in those two spheres. And so being pro-life is being pro all of those kinds of life. And so that's an important part of this discussion that we are going to bypass today and not talk about. Because today, what I thought we would do is actually talk about a range of issues that are literally and immediately life and death issues that certainly Americans have different views on. And even within the Christian world, there's a range of views on uh, all of these topics. And so I thought we would dive into all of those to kind of get a more fully orb sense of what does it really mean to be pro-life beyond just being anti-abortion? Yeah. And we're going to really talk about four specific topics and uh, 
truly each topic could probably be its own podcast if you really dive into the details of it. And, and one of them already was, so. Yes, yes. Um, but we are going to talk about four things. And the first one is going to be abortion, which, like Dale said, we have already talked about in a previous episode. That was actually episode 13. Uh, but we're also going to be talking about physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, war, and capital punishment. So this should be a interesting podcast, a meaningful podcast. We hope that you can think through these things with us. And you might not land on the same side of these things as we do, but... Although you should, because we're really smart and really spiritual. Right. But it's good to just have these discussions and think about the different ways that you can approach these four specific topics. Yeah, so the first one that we want to dive into is the topic of abortion. It's kind of framing this whole pro-life term, so we thought it important to discuss to this. start there. Yeah, yeah, at the start. And as you mentioned, we talked about this in episode 13 of the podcast. And we also do have a blog on our website called How to Approach the Abortion Conversation. And so we'd encourage you to check both of those out. We'll link to those in the show notes. Uh, but just to kind of summarize uh, our thoughts here before we kind of dive into uh, some more of the discussions that, uh, you know, as we said, we believe that life begins at conception. And so we hold to the idea that an abortion or any abortifacient drug constitutes the wrongful taking of a human life. And so we would never under any circumstance recommend or condone any abortion. And so that's that's our stance. But we also believe in uh, redemption for mm -hmm. mothers who have had abortions, along with uh, fathers of unborn children who may have coerced their partner into getting an abortion. So we believe in forgiveness and restoration in that. And also, I think it's important to mention that we understand that there's a lot of trauma involved yeah. when, when abortion takes place, both in the lead up hmm. and in the aftermath. And so poverty and abortion are strongly correlated. And so many women end up feeling forced to have an abortion, like they feel like it's their only option at uh, survival, really. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of trauma that results from that after an abortion has taken place in the life of that mother who has gone through with that abortion. And so even as we hold to a pretty stern view on abortion, uh, we also want to give voice and have compassion for all of those other things mm -hmm. that are going on with abortion, yeah, I think you I think you expressed that in a really concise way and it's probably because it's been a topic that's pretty heavy for Christians. It's a topic that comes up uh certainly during every election season and um it's it's one of those political topics that is heavy on the Christian side of things. Yeah, it's kind of a perennial hot button issue right. with a lot of talking points to it. And really, as it comes to the abortion issue more generally, the question that often faces Christians, again, looking more politically, is exactly what should we do about abortion from a public policy standpoint? What policies can we and should we enact in order to make the abortion rate as low as humanly possible? Because really, that's the goal, right? Right. Is that abortion would be as low as humanly possible, how do we get at that? And for many Christians across the decades, particularly very conservative evangelicals, that has meant voting 
only for Republican candidates from the presidency all the way down because the Republican Party is known as the, the party of being anti-abortion, being pro-life, and the Democratic Party is the party of pro-choice and increasing access to abortion wherever they can. Those have been important parts of their respective platforms for really four or five decades at this point. And so that's that's a pretty ingrained thing that almost we don't even think about anymore uh, for a lot of Christians. It's just like, yeah, of course I vote Republican because I'm anti-abortion. And like that settles the conversation. Yeah. And so my question to you would be, do you think that pro-life Christians are obligated to vote Republican on those grounds, or are they obligated to not vote Democrat at the very least Hmm. on the grounds of being pro-life? So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm, I'm probably going to back up just slightly. I think a great concern of mine is that Christians continue to rally behind pro-life in its political arena only. And we don't necessarily take a step back and think, what does it look like to campaign for this, not only on a political platform, but what does it look like to care about people who are sitting face-to-face with this decision? Do I follow through this pregnancy or do I opt for an abortion? And usually this is a question that concerns younger women. I mean, that's the larger percentage of the stats is younger women are dealing with this and facing this. And unfortunately, we just want to vote Republican so that way we can say we're pro-life. And then that becomes the end of our concern for the issue. We no longer care about actually walking side by side these women who are struggling through this. We just want to fill in our little bubble on our ballot and then like wipe our hands clean. We've done what we're supposed to do and we are pro-life. But nothing else, for the most part, nothing else in our life would show that, especially when it comes to this topic of abortion. And so to now get to your question of does this mean you can can only and should only vote Republican? I'm going to say no, and for a number of reasons. One, because on, you're a leftist Marxist liberal. No, oh, okay. that's not why. Thank you, though. Uh, a number of reasons. When we look at the political issue, this is a political issue. It's not merely just a political issue, but we when we look at it there. If we're only trying to vote for someone who is Republican, we don't look at the rest of the issue when it comes to why abortion is legal. And we we think if we vote for the Republican, then they are going to abolish abortion within our country. But when you dig in deeper, you'll realize the number of abortions was still very high when it was illegal. There was a time in our nation when it was illegal to have an abortion. And women were still getting abortions. And so we have to dig deeper and figure out where is the issue here? Is it merely policy that needs to change and then all of a sudden the problem changes? Well, history would show that's not the case. History would show the issue is healthcare, it's poverty, it's actually walking alongside these women who feel that 
they have absolutely no other choice. Or some would say it's an educational issue. I don't think we're seeing that so much anymore. Maybe previously it was. But even before Roe v. Wade, we still had women having abortion. And not just a handful of them. They were happening on the black market. They were happening um, even, you know, crossing borders into states where it was legal. Like it was still very messy and just bubbling in a Republican candidate doesn't solve the issue. And we need to figure out ways to deal with the issue at hand and not just make it so we have a clean conscience because we voted Republican. If you feel it's necessary to vote Republican and that seems to be what you can vote in good conscience, I think that's great. Um, Or if you feel that way to vote Democrat, then I think you vote that way. I don't think this one specific issue should change the way you vote because it's not as cut and dry as let's put a Republican president into party and then our problems are solved because we've had Republican presidents and we've had Republicans in the Senate and it didn't like we're still dealing with Roe v. Wade. Right. Yeah. So that I mean the, the prevailing thought is you, you vote for a Republican president. That president appoints conservative judges to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade. And then all of a sudden abortion rates will plummet. But that hasn't happened. It hasn't happened because in like 50 years. Yeah, because even the conservative judges uphold the, right. the legal precedent that was set by Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't seem like that's going to be overturned anytime soon, if ever. And even if it was, then it would just go back to the states. So the states would then determine whether abortion would be legal or illegal. And so here in California, my guess is that it would be completely legal, um, the same as it is now. Maybe now in more conservative states, it would be less. I think there's a, a percentage to which abortion rates would drop if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so that would be a good thing. But I don't think voting for a Republican president is going to make that happen. Uh, And I think there are actually other ways that we can see the abortion rate go down, Mm -hmm. um, particularly when you're looking at the state level of things. And... Uh, I think it was Texas had enacted um, more restrictive laws when it comes to abortion. And they saw something like a 20% drop in abortions, which is significant, which would be more than if Roe v. Wade was just overturned nationally. And then there was another study in, I believe it was, oh man, it was either Delaware or Rhode Island. I think it was Delaware. And what had happened there is there was an increase access to healthcare. Yeah. There's an increased access to birth control and that actually decreased the abortion rate by like 36%. And so there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so if our goal is to decrease the number of abortions, I don't think voting for a Republican president is really giving it our best effort. Mm. A, because it's not working 50 years on, it's not working. Right. And B, there are other things that we could be focusing on, uh, regardless of whether you vote Republican or Democrat, that may be a lot more effective at the local level. And so instead of berating someone for voting for Hillary or voting for Biden, uh, it would be much more of a pro-life thing to do to learn where the nearest uh, crisis pregnancy center is in your neighborhood and find out a way to support them, whether 
by volunteering, by donating, uh, by raising awareness, um, all of those sorts of things are going to have a much bigger impact on decreasing abortion really in your own neighborhood. And then as the church, if we do that in our own neighborhoods nationally, then we're going to see that abortion rate go way down. And as Christians, it's important that we find ways to show this is what the church cares about, not only on a ballot, but in real life. And caring about that matters in your vote, but it I think it matters more in how you are engaging your community and how you're trying to show your community that the church is pro-life and we actually act on that. We act on it because we care about women who are struggling with this decision and we care about even even the fathers who feel this has to be the decision as well. And that is far more effective and shows the things that Jesus cares about more than fighting over Republican and Democrat president on the basis of being pro-life only. Yeah, definitely. I think it was David French that said, if we want to see abortions go down, then we have to lead with love rather than like a wagging finger. Mm -hmm. Like it has to be motivated by our activism uh, at a local level rather than uh, putting our hope in a Republican president or whatever it might be. And we pulled a lot of information from a video done by Sky Jitani at the Holy Post, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. You should check out that video. It was uh, way more informative than, than we are and a lot more concise. And so yes, <laughs> I was just saying, it's if you said like, oh, that was really that, articulate. That almost made sense. This actually makes sense. So you can go look at that video. We'll link to it in the show notes. But we're moving along to our next issue of life. We're just... Moving along from heavy issue to heavy issue. This next one is physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Now, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, these are two uh, end-of-life palliative care options uh, that have been around for a while. And these are treatments that are, are for someone at the end of their life. They have a terminal diagnosis and who's in a great deal of pain and suffering. And they usually involve administering an overdose of a barbiturate or some kind of drug like that and essentially stops that person's heart and allows them to die painlessly. And this is more legal in some places than others. So physician-assisted suicide is legal in a number of U.S. states, including California. I think in California, if you have a diagnosis, you have six months or less to live, physician-assisted suicide is legal. Um, I think there's only a handful of states where it's legal. Euthanasia isn't legal anywhere in the U.S. And the main distinction between uh, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia is that in physician-assisted suicide, the patient administers the drugs themselves, like they take the pills or the injection or whatever it might be. Uh, The doctor is merely prescribing that drug. And euthanasia is where the doctor actually administers that lethal dose for you. And so we can see why that's illegal. While physician-assisted suicide is uh, legal in some places. And so as you think about these issues of ending suffering, of dying with dignity, but also being pro-life, where do you think Christians should stand on issues of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia? And kind of how does that fit into our overall theology, both of being pro-life and our theology of suffering? That's a really loaded question. 
I like to load a lot of um, yeah. qualifiers onto a question. <laughs> There's so many ands. Initially, this was something that I was fully against uh, in, obviously, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. And it wasn't until I had heard stories of family members who were placed with these kinds of questions. Like, they were real-life questions for somebody rather than just theoretical questions of what would you do if and when there's no face to it, when there's no actual story behind it, it's really easy to make a judgment call and what you think should be the case. But when you're in that moment and you're seeing someone suffer, it's really difficult and you want to end their suffering. You don't want to see them suffer and they are looking at you, telling you they don't want to suffer either, like they're done suffering. And they want to end it because it seems like it's going to end anyways. So based on stories that I've heard, I think I've become a little bit more um, empathetic than I I was before. Uh, But I still lean on the side of it's not something that Christians should do because it isn't our place to decide when a life ends. And that's hard. That's really difficult as you're seeing someone who's in pain. And unfortunately, the pain and suffering that we endure is part of the fall. And you don't want to see someone physically suffering. But to make the decision that their life is going to end and you're going to be able to decide in this moment, even if that is your own life, as you're suffering and you're laying there and asking the doctor, um, I think we we get into territory that we were never meant to be in. We were never meant to be people who decide when life should end because you really have no idea what God has planned. You have no idea what he's going to do. And we all hope that it isn't, it's something that could be miraculous, like God could heal somebody. But that doesn't even become an option if you decide on physician-assisted suicide. Like You can't take those things into your own hands. When it, I think that's one of those things that is for God to decide. Yeah. It's a tough one. Have you ever seen the movie Paddleton? No. With Ray Romano? So that movie really kind of humanized this whole issue, I feel like, in uh, some really real and impactful ways where Ray Romano, he's best friends with this guy who lives next door to him, and he gets a terminal diagnosis. And the, the movie is basically about his journey to physician-assisted suicide and just like everything that kind of went into that. And so I think we can all empathize with mm-hmm. the the desire for it. But I think if we have a really biblically grounded theology of suffering, then it's a, a little bit of a, a tougher thing to, I guess, embrace. Like where Paul talks about our light and momentary affliction is producing a, a weight of glory that, you know, isn't even worth comparing to the suffering that we're experiencing now that like suffering is meaningful. Like the, the good that God is producing in your soul through your physical suffering is echoing into eternity. Like there's like, none of that is ever wasted is, is really a biblical understanding of suffering I guess the question is, is that suffering needless? It would be, you know, as I'm 
interlocuting objections to my own right. statements. And maybe, maybe the suffering is needless, but even if it's needless, it's not meaningless, mm. I guess. Yeah. And also, too, I mean, I th- you mentioned this, like, you never know, like, what God had planned for you. Like, maybe you stuck around for another six months or a year, even, then your diagnosis would have led you to believe. I mean, that's not an exact science, right? No. I mean, doctors and- can tell you, like, you're going to die and it's going to happen soon, but you don't know exactly. And there's a lot of life you can live and there's a lot of impact you can make and you can make, you know impact that ripples into eternity in the time that you have been given, even in the midst of your suffering. Well, and you hear so many stories. I've had multiple people in my family who've received uh, diagnoses that are terminally ill in terms of the stage their cancer was in. It's been cancer that runs in my family. And all of them lived longer than the doctors expected. Like considerably longer. Yeah, by years years and years longer. And specifically with my grandpa, we thought he was going to die within a few months and he lived a good four or five years later. I remember mourning the loss when we heard the news and then we kept celebrating birthday after birthday with him. And eventually, you know, he did pass away from cancer. But it's just so interesting. The doctors don't have an exact date when your life will end. And that's something you wouldn't want to get wrong. You wouldn't want to assume your life is going to be over in a few months and decide you're going to move forward with physician-assisted suicide. And really, you had years left. Like That's just not something you want to gamble with. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I should say this too. Like while I for myself would never feel good about making this decision for myself and I would never feel good about uh, anyone close to me making this decision, I would, you know, urge against it and recommend against it. At the same time, I get it. Like I, right. like if that's someone's decision, I feel like I'm at a place where if there's, you know, real suffering mm-hmm. and, you know, this is it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily fault somebody because this is a complex issue. Um, even though I wouldn't ever recommend it, and I would always urge against it. Right. What do you think about like having a do not resuscitate order, a DNR? It kind of relates to this conversation, but it's a little bit further out. So the main difference between physician-assisted suicide and DNR is, one, you are actively ending someone's life, where DNR, you're not actively ending it. You're just... Not saving it. Yes. You're not taking any steps to prolong life. And I don't think there's any issues with that because... We haven't had the technology that we've had now years and years and years ago. So the options we have now, if someone were to have a heart attack, were not options that we had even just 50 years ago. So as technology continues to advance, we continue to have the ability to prolong life in ways that we never did before. And I don't think there's any issue with deciding you want a DNR 
like if something were to happen to you, if you were in a car accident or something else traumatic were to happen and you've, you've told everyone, do not resuscitate me. That's not what I want out of life. I just want to go whatever natural way it's supposed to be. And I think that's okay. I think that one has, uh, you have the ability to say yes or say no. And there's no, um, I think you can be at peace with that on either side of DNR. Yeah, I agree with you. But I think the, just playing devil's advocate, from a moral perspective, if you have the ability to save somebody's life and you don't, is that the same as killing them? So you're thinking about it not from the perspective of, I've asked if something were to happen to me, do not resuscitate me. You're thinking of it as the medical professional, for whatever reason they're making the call, not to resuscitate that person. No, I'm not saying... Okay, maybe I phrased it poorly. I'm not saying necessarily like um, putting the guilt on one person who's there trying to resuscitate you or not. But the the order being in place from a moral perspective, barring someone from saving a life, is that the same moral weight as taking a life? I don't think it is. You don't think it relates at all? I think there's some relation, but I don't think it has the same weight. Because you actively taking someone's life is different than you maybe possibly could have saved them. Because you don't know if you really could have saved them, but you know you can take it. Mm-hmm. Like taking someone's life, there's not a whole lot of gray area there. True. Attempting to save someone's life and still not being able to save it, like that's different. But not attempting when you could have attempted. But you would have no idea what that outcome would be. So that's where I'm saying I don't think it has the same weight. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about someone who's non-responsive and the family has to make the the decision to like remove their feeding tube or take them off life support? What about in that situation? You're asking what I think that family should do? Uh, just from a moral perspective, like what is what do you think is moral in that situation? From a biblical moral perspective. I don't think you're going to have the same answer for every case because you have some people who've been on a feeding tube for years and years and there doesn't seem to be any progression in their life and the only thing continuing to keep them alive is what medical professionals have done to hold them in the state that they're in and then you're dealt with another dilemma is this really life what is what is this state anyways? Because this state wouldn't have existed apart from medical technology. So now we've actually created this different state of life that only exists because of the advancements we have in medical technology. So that's not a cut and dry answer. That's something that each family, unfortunately, is going to have to wrestle with. And there's a lot of factors that are going to be at hand in each scenario that's happening, whether someone's on um, feeding tube or life support or whatever it is that's prolonging their life in that state. Yeah, I just, I can't say yes or no on that one because I think it, it truly is case by case. Right, yeah. And I would say if someone is in a vegetative state and it's unlikely that they will ever recover from that it's probably an act of mercy to, you know, pull the life support out so that they can, you know, you can let them go at that point rather than artificially maintaining some kind of semblance of quote unquote life, which isn't, you know, an actual life at that point. 
Yeah. And these are hard, hard choices. And I know people are faced with them. And by no means would I want anyone to feel any sort of judgment, whether they did or didn't. So that's where I stand on that one. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let's move on from that because that was uh, that was a little too cheerful for me. So let's move on to something darker. You and your uh, sarcasm. Like war. Huh. What is it good for? Okay. <laughs> so for anyone who is pro-life, war is never a good thing, right? Because... Absolutely nothing. What is it good for? Oh, no. Absolutely nothing. Because it always... Sing it again. Resu- it always results in the loss of life on a larger scale. So... Up until now, we've been talking about the loss of a life on, and really like a one-to-one scenario where war, people are lost by like hundreds of thousands in mass, mass amounts to where we can't even quite wrap our minds around the amount of people that lose their life in any given war. But that being said, Christians historically have actually been really divided on this topic. Ever heard of the Crusades? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, we're not going to talk about the Crusades. Uh, so, so, like I said, Christians are really divided on this topic. You really threw a wrench on that one. You did. Um, and the reason why Christians have been so divided is because the question of how do we preserve the most amount of life in any given situation and when it comes to war, that becomes really, really difficult to answer because you don't always know how it's going to shake out at the end of things, whether or not more lives were lost than should have been, or if engaging in that war actually spared lives in the end. Right, by your action or inaction. Right. And which tactics you took, what was the way to preserve the most life is complicated. To say the least. <laughs> Yeah. So there are four main views that we're going to look at. And really, it come these four views come out of a book called War for Christian Views. Really. Appropriately named. Yes. yes. So. <laughs> Just right on the nose. We'll link to is. that one in the show notes. That one is kind of a seminal book. I think it's written in like 1985 or something like that. I think where so. Where four different contributors uh, basically argued their best their, take on each view. Right. So it's a good resource to have. It's called War for Christian Views. <laughs> <laughs> the end. The end. Yeah. But we'll summarize the four views for you if you don't want to buy the book. So the first view is non-resistance. This view argues that while the use of force and war may be necessary for governments, this is not something that Christians should participate in. Uh, because the use of this kind of force takes lives, and we're not okay with that. So this view is based on the fact that while God commanded his people into war, in the Old Testament, we are now living in the age of grace, and so our means of spiritual battle don't ever involve physical violence. And so that's, I would say that's kind of their foundational view in terms of uh, how they take that from Scripture. Uh, Since war is evil... And opposed to God's will, the Christian is obligated to refrain from fighting. He may, however, participate as a person who's um, not in combat. So that 
would be the person who says like we are in the non-resistance view of war. Yeah, and then there's pacifism, which basically takes non-resistance a step further, and it says that Christians ought not be involved in the violence of the government at all, that we need to remove ourselves from ever serving the interests of the military, whether as a combatant or a non-combatant. And the reasoning is you know, very similar to that of non-resistance, that yes, there was violence in the Old Testament. Yes, God commanded them to war, but that was a very different context now that we've entered into the covenant of grace with Jesus. That is no longer a means that we use for spiritual battle, because in the Old Testament there was, there was a physical battle, but it was really a spiritual battle. And really that that is not a one-to-one that we can use that as evidence that God is, you know, pro-war. In fact, God is very anti-war. He's very anti-violent in this view. And so in the non-resistant, you're just not actively involved in the fighting, but in pacifism, you're out of the game completely. You're, you're nowhere near even remotely supporting anything militaristic. Yeah. And they wouldn't compromise in their approach at all. Where non-resistance, there's some areas of compromise. There's a little wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah. So on the other side of things, we have just war. This view is actually argued that Christians are obligated to fight if their country or government is fighting a war for just reasons. Uh, And I think an obvious example would be uh, World War II when... Fighting Nazis. I mean, what greater evil? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty black and white. These guys are evil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So this view doesn't draw such a hard distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Uh, God cares deeply about both love and justice. So where we are protecting justice and the vulnerable, it's actually loving to go to war against an evil enemy. And this would draw from like Romans 13, uh, where this view advocates for the idea that Caesar doesn't bear the sword in vain. So there's a role um, within the governing authorities to go to war if it is a right, just to strike war. strike down the evildoer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then the caveats within this would be that the war itself must be just and that the, the tactics right. within that war have to be just as well. Also must be just. Mm-hmm. And when that's not the case, then Christians uh, need to be conscientious objectors to that war and not participate in it. And then the last one's preventative war, which actually takes just war a step further. And it says that war is appropriate not only in response to a grave evil, but also in response to a potential evil. So in this framework, governmental like posturing or menacing behavior can constitute an act of aggression. And so in this view, Christians should be involved in preemptively striking against that to quell that potential evil action. And so the argument here is that we, if we are reasonably able to prevent an evil or an injustice, but instead we allow it to happen first, and then we strike against it to stop it, when we could have stopped it before it started, then we are morally culpable for that evil and that injustice. And so there's kind of a spectrum here of like Mm -hmm. non-resistant, I'm not really going to fight against the fighting, but I'm not going to be involved with it. Pacifism, 100% 100% out of the game. Then there's just war, only if the war is just. And then there is preemptive, which if we think they're going to punch us first, we punch them first. Right. Because so, they could kill more people before we take them down. Yeah. 
So which of these views do you lean towards? Depending on the day. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not a pacifist. Okay. Um, depending on what mood I'm in, I might be non-resistant. Uh, I think, so I probably would, would kind of rest in just war. But then it, it, it unfurls a bunch of other questions. What constitutes a just war? Who's deciding whether the war is just or not. Right. What metric are we using? Okay, so we use the example of the Nazis. Yeah, you got to fight the Nazis because they're they're murdering millions of people and they're bent on world domination. That's a that's a pretty easy one. But then when you come to like the Vietnam War, right? When you come to the war on terror and the objective of the war is even a little bit fuzzy, that's where I start to get a little bit squeamish. And I'll probably get squeamish before other people get squeamish because they know for reason A, B, C, this is why this is a just war. When it comes to preemptive war, uh, it makes sense, uh, except for when you have a bad intel. Um, right. I think weapons of mass destruction, that was kind of preemptive and turns out there weren't any. Mm. And yep. so I just feel uneasy about that. But just war is probably where I would rest because if there is evil being perpetrated uh, and people are being oppressed, I think it is the obligation of of a of a good government, mm. a good nation to step in and uh, protect those who are vulnerable at even at the cost of their own life. Right. So how do you grapple with the fact that war will always be a reality and assimilate that into the particulars of our view on war? Yeah, I think it would be easiest to be a pacifist, right? Absolutely. Because you just wipe your hands clean of it. Right, yeah. And say, this is all wrong and I'm not involved at all. Yeah. And people would point to like Jesus, like Jesus being a pacifist, like Jesus was anti-violent. I'm like, yeah, but Jesus also like fashioned his own whip and you know, went into the the temple marketplace. And yes, Jesus was completely, almost completely nonviolent in his earthly ministry. But Jesus is not going to be nonviolent. He's not going to be a pacifist when he comes back. Like all mm. the kingdoms of the world are going to be made his footstool. And so... Yeah. I mean, that will be a just war that he will win. And so I think with that as the framework, but then also not putting myself on the level of Jesus, saying (laughs) that the war that I (laughs) think is just, Mm. I think just navigating all of those nuances on a case-by-case. I mean, and there are some some cases where it's going to be more obvious than others. But yeah, I, I don't think... Uh, from a from a governmental perspective, pacifism uh, is kind of a naive hmm. view yeah. that will lead to your own people being killed and oppressed. Right. Yeah. Because Caesar doesn't bear the sword in vain. Mm-hmm. Like Paul said, Caesar bears the sword and he doesn't make commentary on whether Caesar should or shouldn't have the sword. He says he doesn't bear it in vain. And actually, it's a good thing that he does because uh, he it's there to put down the evildoer. And so there are evildoers that need to be put down. So that's the reality of it. Yeah. I think 
I wish it were easy. Like, I, I wish it were easy to say, this is a just war. Absolutely. Let's, this is something we have to do. It would be wrong not to step into this. Um, but at least the wars in my lifetime have been very fuzzy. And I even fear that as we're deciding, is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? Even the information that we have as citizens is still pretty limited. And you find out years later, there were far more details that came out of why we went to war and what was really happening that we weren't preview to in the time that the people around us were enlisting and going to war. And that's frustrating. It's unfair. And so when it comes to making a decision, obviously being a pacifist is the easiest way to go because then you don't have any skin in the game and whatever ends up going bad, it's not as if you were supporting it anyways. So I think I wish it were simpler and I wish we lived in some sort of an ideal situation where it were clear when we needed to step into war and when we didn't. Right, like the white hat and the black hat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's not that easy. And so I would probably lean towards just war as where I would probably have that be my baseline always and do my best to think through that specific scenario and what's happening there. But it's a difficult one because we live in a world where war is very much a reality. And to step out of that and say, no, we're not going to engage in war at all, you actually end up risking the lives of the entire nation by seeing people are coming to attack you and you're not going to engage. Like That's a problem. Yeah. And just before we move on, I think it's also important to point out that we're saying all this even against the backdrop of white evangelical Americans being a little bit maybe gung-ho about war. War. Uh, So we want to be sensitive to that while at the same same time uh, understanding the fact that Caesar does not bear the sword in vain and where there is oppression and injustice and uh, loss of life, hmm. um, military action is sometimes necessary in, in the midst of that. Yeah. Um, but discerning that is, is a little bit difficult. Well, moving on to our last topic yeah. of life and death is that of capital punishment. Capital punishment is another perennial hot button issue. We've covered a number of those now. And it always comes up whenever there's a high profile execution uh, I think in California, we've gone back and forth between capital punishment being legal and illegal like a couple of times. So then like yeah. people who had death sentences, they got them commuted, but then like the death sentence was reinstated. I think Charles Manson got off on that technicality where he got a life sentence when he originally was... Um, sentenced? Yeah, was, he was originally sentenced uh, for capital punishment, but then he, that, that got commuted. And when we reinstated capital punishment, it didn't go back. So it's a weird back and forth. Uh, and so the, it's just a debated issue. And it's surprising that there is more than two views on this issue. I would think there would be two, for and against. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. And there's actually three different views that people have on capital punishment. And the first of those three is retentionist. And by the way, we're getting this all from Scott Ray's book, Moral Choices, which we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But the retentionists 
they believe that capital punishment should stand as a legitimate form of punishment against, you know, basically the most heinous crimes, murder, you know, violent rapes, just like, you know, really egregious stuff. Uh, and there's actually biblical precedent for capital punishment, for execution in uh, uh, egregious cases and, and egregious crimes. In the Old Testament. Yes. We read in, that. Yeah. In the Old Testament. And there are a number of other arguments they make from a moral and societal perspective on why capital punishment uh, should stand. And the first is that capital punishment expresses proportional justice, a life for a life, right? The capital punishment is a unique deterrent uh, to certain crimes that if you know this is actually literally going to cost you your life, that's a unique deterrent. Uh, another reason is that, is that society shouldn't have to bear the cost of housing an inmate for a life sentence, that you shouldn't have to house them for 40 or 50 years after their crime. And uh, the last one is that capital punishment is administered humanely. And in a modern age, I mean, unless you live in Texas, uh, it's going to be administered through lethal injection or uh, through, what do you call it? The gas chamber? They still do the gas chamber? Yeah, in Texas, they actually do, I think they're going back to an option of like a firing squad. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so there's... I didn't know that. Some ways that are more humane than others, but even the less humane ways, like the electric chair, uh, in a lot of cases are more humane than what their victims got. So, And that's the reasoning behind it. I mean, so okay. it's all relative, okay. but from my perspective, I want to make it as humane as humanly possible because, I mean, there's no humane way to take somebody's life, but we have ways that are as humane as you can do it. Mm. On the other side, there are abolitionists, and abolitionists, as you would guess, they want to abolish it. Right. <laughs> they uh, they think it's an affront to human dignity. And so there are a number of reasons that they want it to see abolished. And the first is that they see it as undermining the dignity of people who are made in the image of God. And that it cheapens human life. Uh, another is that you can't reform someone after you kill them. So if we have an idea that justice is reformative rather than retributive, then you don't get that option with capital punishment. The other one is that death sentences usually are accompanied by long and expensive appeals. And so that means that from a financial perspective, it's not actually that much cheaper to execute them than it is to house them for life. It is cheaper, but is it really that much cheaper? That's the argument. Uh, and uh, the last argument is that retributive justice is inconsistent with Jesus's ethic of forgiveness and redemption. So from their perspective, that this is incompatible with the, the redemptive love of Jesus. Right, because if you take someone's life, where is the opportunity for redemption? Right, it's gone. It doesn't exist. Yeah, and then there's the procedural abolitionists. This is the third view. And procedural abolitionists, they would actually be retentionists if they felt like we were executing the right person 100% of the time. But because they distrust the system so much, on at least two different counts, they believe that we shouldn't execute anybody. And here are the two different counts. First one is that mistakes are inevitable and irreversible. Wrongful convictions are not as uncommon as we would like to see. And the second one is that the way in which the death penalty is administered is discriminatory in that you're much more likely to be executed if you're poor and or if you are a person of color. Right. And so they say, yeah, we're all about life for a life. We're all about, you know, proportional justice. We don't think that this is an inhumane thing to do, but 
we get it wrong enough that it's just it be on not the table. worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yep. If we could ever iron out all the, the kinks in this and get it, you know, 100%, then yes, we'll be on board. But we probably won't ever be able to do that. And so that's where the procedural abolitionists stand. So, Tamara, of the views, <laughs> which is the most biblical one that everyone listening to this should have? Um, I don't think there is one that is the most biblical. Sorry. That's why people are listening to us. They want answers. Well, Concrete I can tell you. answers. They want to know the people whose opposing views they should hate. Why are you yelling at me? For fun. That's not fun. <laughs> I can tell you where I stand on this. Interestingly enough, I had to write an SAT prep prompt on where I stood in terms of capital punishment. We get it. You went to college. You took the SATs. Well, I prepped for them, right? So <laughs> did I take them? Who knows? <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> I have no idea. I just remember it was a Saturday course where I was prepping. So in my in my prepping for the SAT, I had to write on this. And my view then is actually different than my view now. What was your view then? My view then was absolutely. It was fry them. No. It wasn't Fryum, but my view then was, yes, capital punishment should exist. And now I would definitely lean towards being a procedural abolitionist. And that is because the more I have come to understand about the flaws in our justice system and how many issues there are in our system, I don't trust that it is going to get it right even 50% of the time. And because of that, I don't think this should be something that we hold to. If there's a possibility that we're going to get it wrong and the likelihood is that we're going to get it wrong, then I don't think capital punishment should exist. Actually, land in the exact same place. We didn't discuss this beforehand, but... We didn't. I Yeah, I would land on a procedural abolitionist because... I do see the flaws in the justice system as it pertains to unequal justice with regard to people of color, people who are less wealthy, that if you can lawyer up, then you can, you know, get yourself out of a lot of stuff or at least get your sentence reduced. And um, if you don't have the resources, then you can't. And two, um, there's there's a clear bias against people of color. If we just look at the numbers of the violent crimes mm-hmm. and the people who are executed for those violent crimes, they're disproportionately uh, black and brown. Right. So another question in regards to capital punishment. Uh, do you think the perspective of the victim or their family should be considered in whether or not someone is assigned the death penalty? I think that... The victim's family should be considered when they're advocating against a person receiving the death penalty. Why? You're going to have to explain that. You can't just say that and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I can. It's my podcast. No. <laughs> um, so let's say there was someone in my family who was murdered and then they, they convicted the person who who had done it, and then I I gave a statement, and I said, please judge, uh, do not give this person 
the death penalty. Um, that's not what my family member would have wanted. Uh, that's not what we believe is, is the right thing. Um, as Christians, you know, this and that and the other. I think that that should be weighed. Uh, I don't know if it should be weighed if the family comes up and says, you killed my brother, fry him you know, to the fullest extent of the law, uh, execute him and execute him you know, as fast as you can. I don't know if that necessarily should factor into the decision. Hmm. I don't know. I don't really have a good reason for that. I just think that when the victim is asking for grace on behalf of the perpetrator, that that should be listened to. Uh, and when the victim is asking for retribution, that the judge should just take look at the facts of the case and then go off of that. Right. And that makes sense because you obviously the family of the victim is probably more likely going to want retribution. And as the justice system is trying to find what is just and how do we find justice for the the victim they have to be able to look at that based on facts rather than based on the desire for vengeance. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of uh, processing that has taken place in the midst of this conversation and um, will probably continue to take place around all of these issues because these issues are super complicated and they're super important Mm -hmm. uh, and they're super nuanced. And I think that's because when we say that we're pro-life, Really, when we say that, we have to ask ourselves, pro whose life? Like We live in a mm. world that's fallen and broken, and so violence and death are a part of our reality. And so the question becomes, whose life do we prioritize? And like, what are we willing to do to protect the lives that we have prioritized, even up to the point of taking another life that we have not prioritized? And whether those prioritizations are valid or not. Hmm. So we don't pretend to have all the answers to that question. I just just threw that one up in the air. Yeah. Throw that reflection question up in the air and then you can go to bed and think think about about it it. all night. We don't have the answers, but you think about it. Yeah. But even though we don't have the answers, I feel like we, we do have hope, uh, you know, even while we wade through the uncertain waters of our broken world, Mm -hmm. because we serve the God who will eventually make it to where there is no more death and violence. And really that is the hope of the gospel that, uh, that, that we will know a place where there is perfect justice. There is no death. There is no suffering. There is no, uh, injustice that is, uh, continuing to persist. And so our hope is in Jesus. And really until then, uh, we're, we're just obligated uh, to preserve life and justice here and now, uh, wherever we can. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also, be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. In a
recent survey, parents reported that 52% of homeschooled children need learning accommodations. These parents need practical advice, encouragement, and hope to fuel their homeschooling efforts. The Empowering Homeschool Conversations podcast is where parents gain wisdom on how to teach unique learners successfully at home, like Laura, who recently told us, I needed this episode. I don't need a fancy curriculum or need to be a special ed teacher to teach my son. You have given me hope. To listen now, go to Life Audio or search Empowering Homeschool Conversations on your favorite podcast app.